I think I'm the default MC. This is <laughs> Megan. Um, so I'm, uh, thank you, Jean. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Corky. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Adam. Who am I forgetting? I hope I didn't forget anyone. Okay, so without, uh, so now I'm thrilled to welcome panel one to the stage. Um, Chelsea and Alicia and Kendra, Laura and Lou, um, we're so happy to welcome you for a conversation about education. Um, Um, well, I don't know how I'm supposed to follow Jean and Coyote in the same room, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll do our best. Harito, Suhocho Foyet, Chelsea Her, Chata Hoyosia, Oklahoma, Michili. Hello, my name is Chelsea Her. I am a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I'm the curator for Indigenous Art and Culture at Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I first would like to acknowledge and thank the Lenape people on whose ancestral land we now stand, or sit, as the case may be. Being a guest in this place, I recognize their sovereignty and perseverance as both ancestral and living communities and local and diasporic nations. I'm also grateful to the Whitney Museum for organizing these important conversations today and to Jean Quick to see Smith, who has spent decades demanding visibility and carving space for Native peoples, artists, activists, and educators. This morning's panel will focus on the impact that Jean's advocacy and art career have had on Indigenous education, as well as on the significance that higher education has had for this esteemed group of Indigenous educators up here today. For some context on Jean's formal education background, she graduated with a Bachelor's of Art Education from Framingham State in Massachusetts before receiving her master's in art at the University of New Mexico. In 1998, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And in 2003, she received another honorary doctorate from the Massachusetts College of Art. In addition to her experiences in classrooms, Jean's body of work itself is intrinsically educational each painting, drawing, print, or sculpture that she creates is a lesson in and of itself, not only on the histories, realities, and possibilities for Native peoples, but also a lesson for each viewer about the way they individually perceive and experience the world. Her work compels us to probe the presumptions we make, the preconceptions we bring, and the possible new insights and questions we might walk away with. The most poignant moments of education, and certainly some of the most compelling elements of Jean's work, are born from the insistence that we not accept any one narrative or image as quote unquote truth. Instead, she encourages us to question how and why something appears the way it does, and to interrogate our own responses to what is being presented. Many times, this type of education is accompanied by varying levels of discomfort, which is necessary for growth and understanding. The most challenging and rewarding questions do not result in comfortable or uncomplicated lessons. 
So how do the complex and edifying lessons we encounter in Jean's work coalesce in spaces like museums, universities, and artist studios? Often, even today, ostensible divisions between the worlds of higher education, art production, and museum work persist. Jean's inimitable career is evidence that these spheres don't merely overlap or run parallel to one another, but rather they are inextricably interwoven. Her work reminds us that education is based on exchange, not on a unilateral transfer of knowledge. In an early example of this spirit of exchange in her life, Jean formed the Gray Canyon Artist Group while she was a graduate student at the University of New Mexico in the 70s with other indigenous artists like Ed Singer and Emmy Whitehorse. Gray Canyon worked to educate the public about native art and issues in both academic and gallery spaces. And in turn, Jean and her contemporaries learned about the complex realities of exhibiting work as native artists in both native and non-native spaces. Of her time in her undergraduate and graduate programs, Jean has noted the rigidity in which she, as a native woman and artist, was expected to perform. One of her undergraduate professors maintained that the apparent proper space for women was in art education, not necessarily in pursuing a career as a working artist. In her graduate studies and during her time with Gray Canyon, she regularly encountered tensions between her work appearing too Indian or not Indian enough a fallacy that unfortunately still pervades parts of the native art world in 2023. But luckily for us here today, and for anyone who has had the pleasure of encountering Jean's work, she did not allow those obstacles to deter her or to define what it meant to promote and pursue education. If you were able to hear Jean's lecture last night with the Whitney's director, Adam Weinberg, you heard her ask the question of this exhibition, how can we have a lasting impact? She was referring to the relative ephemerality of an exhibition, even one at a major museum of American art like the Whitney. How can artists, museums, scholars, audience members, and others meaningfully impact not just the colonial spaces we may inhabit in our day-to-day -day lives, but meaningfully impact the lives of the native peoples who are represented in these exhibitions and programming? For me, that answer lies with education. In last night's presentation, you may have also heard Jean regular, regularly reference the people who have taught her throughout her life, people who have shared with her and inspired her as she contextualized each experience as one of education. That is how we have a lasting impact, by treating every interaction we have with one another and with the animate world around us as something from which we can perpetually learn and something we can also impart to others. If we see our daily lives as moments of reciprocity and exchange rather than of extraction, the impacts of these events will ripple beyond the brief time they exist within the walls of a museum. You might notice in speaking with native people that we often say, someone taught me or so-and-so told me. One of the reasons for this is because our worldviews are often dependent upon who we are learning from, how we learn from one another, and how we might then work to educate others. In many indigenous communities, education does not only occur in a classroom or in the pages of an academic journal, standardized textbook, or exhibition catalog. Rather, our education is rooted in conversations with our families around the kitchen table. 
in the intergenerational knowledge that is shared as we experience the world on a day-to-day -day basis, in the cultural fabric of our communities. It is embodied in the ooze of artists like Jean Quick to see Smith, whose works promote discourse and elicit questions each time they are viewed. For this reason, we formatted our panel today as a conversation rather than a series of small lectures. I'm humbled to speak this morning with a group of indigenous leaders in the field of higher education who have forged and continue to forge paths for indigenous students and indigenous studies in educational spaces. I'll ask them questions about their own experiences and perspectives, but this time should be dialogic and reciprocal with you in the audience as well. We'll leave time at the end of our discussion for thoughts and questions from the audience, so I encourage you to make note of anything you might want to discuss later. All right. So I'm going to ask um, each of our panelists, and we'll go down here in a line, starting with uh, Laura, to introduce themselves, spend a couple of minutes talking about their backgrounds in education um, and what brought them here to this event today. So Laura, can you start? Sure. OCO, I'm Dr. Laura Evans. I'm Cherokee. Um, the program has my previous job title. I've just had a recent change. I'm now the Vice President of Programs for First Peoples Fund which is uh, an artist funding organization that's been around for more than 20 years. And um, it's, it's a native organization. And I get to do one of the things that I really love doing, which is building arts infrastructure designed specifically for native artists. Um, I pursued a PhD in Native American art history, not realizing that um, there weren't any other native people who had gone for that degree and successfully. And I didn't find out that I was the first Native American tribally enrolled US person to get a PhD in Native art history until after I accomplished it. Um, <clears throat> and it feels like not very humble to, to talk about that. But that was the, the environment into which I entered into graduate school. And I came from an art background. Um, I trained as an artist, but I had seen so much <clears throat> of how people talked about what I was making was that, that dynamic. It wasn't Indian or it was too Indian. Like there was just no way to do it right. So I, I could write pretty well. So I decided to go to graduate school and get a PhD and then people would have to listen to me talk about artwork. <laughs> Sometimes I describe that as having gone over to the dark side by, by leaving art and going into art history. Um, but that's what I did. And I've taught at a predominantly white institution, the Evergreen State College. Um, <clears throat> um, although there's a really good native community attached to that. Um, and then the Institute of American Indian Arts, which is a tribal college. And I've just been there for 11 years. Um, but I'm a curator. I'm an educator. Um, I'm an art writer. I'm a scholar. I'm an arts administrator. Um, I am an executive producer and producer of documentary short films about Native American artists as well. Oh, no. <laughs> I just want to share. Let's see if mine works. Yep, okay. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Um, thank you, Chelsea. Amadaya, Madagiabi, Chaje Mital Alicia Harris, Hude Shana Nakoda Shemacha. 
Pinamia Inkje Wichashta Makotene, Pinamia Whitney Museum, Pinamia Jean, Laura, thank you for being here today with us. So my name is Alicia Harris. I am Assiniboine from the Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux Tribes in northeastern Montana. Um, we're from the plains side, not from the mountain side of Montana. <laughs> um, and I am an assistant professor of Native American art history at the University of Oklahoma. Um, the University of Oklahoma has a uh, unique program in that we are the only program in the United States that offers a PhD track explicitly dedicated to Native American art. Uh, I also received my PhD from the University of Oklahoma. They can't get rid of me, <laughs> just stick around. Um, and in thinking about what, what brought me here, um, I remember sitting in, in classes in my undergraduate, I sort of started out in art history, and I remember sitting in my classes uh, always wondering about us and thinking, gosh, we're not written into this story at all. I learned a lot about Catholicism, which I wasn't raised Catholic. I feel like I know more about Catholicism than anything <laughs> from my art history classes. That's the sort of the bulk of what they taught us. And I remember sitting in those classes and thinking, where are we in this story? We didn't, we didn't show up. Um, and that's not just us, right? There, I, I, I didn't learn anything about Africa or Asia, or really anything beyond like Western Europe. Um, and so I, I sort of pushed asked questions about that and that, that sort of fueled my, uh, my career. And I, in the course of doing that, found people in my own family who were artists, uh, members of my community who I, I love and respect, uh, learned about their work. They were my first teachers. So um, I appreciate John bringing it back to our communities to say that they are the people who, who gave us this, who taught us about our, uh, our values and the, the things that we value uh, are often very beautiful, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, so in my, in my career now at the University of Oklahoma, um, I've been there in this role uh, since 2020. And actually, there's a photo on the screen right now of one of my classes. Um, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, a little bit more. Um, but we are <clears throat> uh, excited to continue making space for Native students. Uh, of the students who have graduated with PhDs, some of whom are in this room right now, I'm happy to see y'all. Um, the majority of them are Native students, uh, tribally enrolled people who have, who have PhDs um, or who have gone on to uh, shape the field in important ways, and uh, we're very proud of them. So good to see you all, and uh, yeah, thank you. Hani Chara Haipi. My name is Kendra Greendeer. I'm an enrolled member of the Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin and also a descendant of Red Cliff and Fond du Lac bands of Lake Superior Ojibwe. Um, I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, my dissertation's focusing on rematriation and contemporary indigenous women artists and, um, and indigenous feminist acts of placemaking. Um, so my undergrad was, I received my undergrad from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 2014. And I went on to pursue my master's in art and museum studies from Georgetown University. And um, I have remained very connected to museum work. I've done um, uh, some work with the National Museum of the American Indian and um, also, as a collections manager for a Ho-Chunk-run nonprofit, Little Eagle Arts Foundation. Um, and uh, just as a background, I've uh, taught quite a bit in 
my PhD program, mostly for IMLS students. And I will be joining Oklahoma State University this fall as an assistant professor in art history. All right, hello everyone. Um, my name is Lou Cornum. Uh, just wanna echo all of the gratitude and warmth and love in the room right now. Um, it's really uh, an honor to be able to be on this panel with you all, but also to just to be in the room with so many people who have made my uh, existence in the city possible. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, I hope you don't mind me kind of going uh, deep in relaying how I got here, because I have been thinking a lot about um, sort of the, um, the history of, um, of my, my present, my ability to, to be here. But, so I won't go so far deep, um, but we'll start um, in that my, my family, uh, my mother's side is um, Diné. I'm an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation. Uh, and my father's side are um, Irish and Scottish American settlers. I was born uh, outside of Phoenix uh, in Chandler, Arizona, and grew up in uh, Tucson. And uh, I came to uh, New York City when I was 18 uh, to go to Columbia University. Um, and in one of the ironies that perhaps is shared by uh, what I've started to describe as sort of diasporic native people, I came, to, I came from Arizona to New York City and then decided to begin my studies in Diné Bazad, or the Navajo language, uh, which was an yeah, interesting <laughs> choice. Um, given that there weren't many speakers right around um, in New York City, but there were, um, there actually was another Navajo student uh, at my um, at Columbia, and we started a little study group. Um, and so I decided to major in linguistics, thinking that that would kind of be a way to access um, some knowledge about Navajo language. Realized that linguistics was like very different than what I had imagined, um, and so after I. Uh, graduated, I knew that I still wanted to be uh, in the kind of uh, scholarly space of the university. Um, it allowed me um, yeah, this chance to study um, not only my own sort of um, history, but also how it was connected right to this history of the United States and this global history. Um, but also as, I think, um, a queer person who grew up in Arizona, the academy also seemed like a place that had more space for um, you know, the, kind of, um, the kind of weirdo that I was quickly realizing myself to be and not having a lot of other spaces uh, that seemed to accept my shape. Uh, so the academy has both been that and also has been uh, right a constraint. And I think that that's perhaps one of the themes that might arise in our, our conversation is both that these spaces of study make a lot possible for those of us who might not have seen futures for ourselves in other contexts, but at the same time can really constrain uh, our modes of expression and being together. So we're always having to kind of find the, the little loophole and, uh, and make it bigger together. Um, so yeah, um, I went to... Um, UBC after that, uh, because it was one of the few places in Canada where there were actually uh, Native Studies departments uh, and people who could uh, continue to, to help me learn about uh, what Native Studies was. Um, and so that's really where I feel like I began uh, to kind of see myself within the field of, of Native American and Indigenous Studies. Um, and I switched from linguistics to literature, realized that, yeah, that language doesn't just exist in the scientific mode of study, but also right in, in novels and in science fiction, in particular, was my interest. Um, and I 
I think I was so interested in science fiction because of my own identification with uh, aliens, but also with uh, thinking about the kind of conditions of um, native uh, and indigenous diaspora being reflected in these stories of going off earth or what does it mean to be uh, indigenous sort of in, in motion uh, and away from those uh, sites. So yeah, that's uh, kind of the basis of a lot of my uh, first research projects. I got my PhD at the CUNY Graduate Center um, and now I'm an assistant professor um, of Native American Indigenous Studies at, um, at NYU. Thank you, everyone. Um, I would like to ask kind of each of you as well to maybe explain a little bit how um, Jean's work specifically has impacted your own education, your own research, and um, what role it plays in your work currently. I'll let you guys choose who wants to go first. I'll do it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, uh, I graduated from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln with my master's degree, um, and that program was an American art history program. And I remember uh, I had taken a, a course on uh, landscape, and it was an American landscape course, and um, I was asked to write a paper about uh, Mount Rushmore, <laughs> which is a problem for me. <laughs> and uh, in the in the course of doing that, I you know was constantly in the back of my mind about you know it ended up being a very sort of critical approach to Mount Rushmore, obviously, um, but in the back of my mind, I I was I was burdened with the fact that I was having to do this, and so I was really fueled to look at like native representations of land, which turned into my whole career, basically, <laughs> sort of the, the place that I'm at now. Um, and I remember looking at this particular map, actually, the, the, the slideshow synced up with what I'm doing here. So <laughs> I remember looking at this map in particular um, and thinking about the ways that we are, again, erased from these stories, from these narratives. Um, and I feel like Jean answered the questions that I had through, through writing that paper and through thinking through, um, which then launched into, uh, there's a chapter in my dissertation that's focused on those maps. Um, it's thinking about the ways that Native people have been uh, mapping, which will, I'm working on turning that into to a manuscript at this point. Um, so, so it really became fuel for a lot of the work that I've, I've done uh, since that time, since I was just a little baby art historian <laughs> trying to think about these things, um, and continues to give me new insights I think that her work uh, provides a, a, an inroad for a lot of us, and it teaches us. I think about Jean's work as sort of a mirror um, to remind ourselves of who we are and who we've been, um, and gives us a view of our diverse sophistication, the beauty of this place, the beauty of our cultures and our communities. Um, and I, that's the thing that came to me as I was like looking at the exhibition and thinking about the, the study that I've done of her work. Um, so really that's, that's sort of where I keep coming back to it because I think that I see something different every time I visit with those works and I, and I really appreciate that. Well, I think I was first, I first encountered Jean's work in undergrad. Um, we had done a field trip to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum and that's when her petroglyph series was being exhibited there. Um, so I, I think that was one of the first opportunities I had to take my time with mediums that were associated with like Western artistic um, making and 
and looking at all the symbols that she used within within her pieces, that was um, it made me recognize that that was what made her so special as an artist. Now that I've written a whole chapter on her for my dissertation, <laughs> is that she created these entry points that I could connect with, but non-native people could also engage with um, in a format that would was familiar to them rather than the motifs more familiar to me. And um, so, and even, I thought it was really interesting. I was thinking yesterday on my train ride up, um, and so I was thinking about what I was gonna talk about. I looked out the window and then there was a, a poster for Rutgers Art Museum and then it was Jean's Tree of Life work on there. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it was, it was just, um, because her work is so accessible to people, like you, anyone can engage with it to the extent that they want or can understand. And, um, and especially when considering what artists engage with rematriation, as I was trying to think about how to frame my dissertation and thinking about who has, who is an established artist that has done this. And of course, Jean was at the top of my list. Um, so, yeah, um, her work has been incredibly impactful to me throughout my educational journey. And, um, and yeah, I think I'll, I'll maybe I'll leave it there for now. For me, I'm encountering Jean's work um, in the in the '90s. Um, yes, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> I I loved the the humor that that cloaked the biting critiques. Um, that really appealed to me. Like my dad was a smart ass, and and then here's John's work. John's clearly a smart ass, just like my dad. <laughs> and and that just it really fueled my smart ass. <laughs> Forgive my bad language, but um, you know, like it it just emotionally helped me about sp speaking out and finding my voice and being more blunt sometimes when the occasion calls for it. Um, and I hadn't seen Jean's work in person, I think. I was trying to like remember. Um, I think the first time was when I arrived at University of New Mexico to work on my PhD there. And um, one of her works was on display at the University Art Museum. And that was my first time like seeing one in person because before that I had only seen them reproduced in books or projected via slides. Not PowerPoint, slides. <laughs> um, and, and it was just so special to, to see one of her large works in person at that museum as I was starting my doctoral work. And, um, and then yesterday, seeing the, the Paper Dolls series, um, like I had seen them again in books and and somehow, like even when I look at the dimensions like listed on something, there's something different about seeing it in person. And I had always imagined these as like, oh, they're like this this size. I'm like, no, they're this size. Oh my gosh, just this, I just 
felt those paper dolls in my heart, like what I felt when I first saw them um, back when I was young and you know, not as far removed from having played with paper dolls myself. Um, so that's, that's Jean's influence on my personal development. Um, yeah, so I'm a bit of a, of a latecomer to the, the art world and the study of art, um, and I really um, came to Jean's work by chance um, in, in New York City. I forget which museum it was in now, but yeah, I was, I was an undergrad and I saw the um, trade, uh, tra the gifts for um, trading land with white people, uh, which is now an image I use on my syllabus um, for intro to, to Native American indigenous studies. Um, and as somebody who is very uh, preoccupied with language and theory, uh, I find that the kind of visual right, representation offers another way to access uh, historical knowledge, um, but also just sort of different ways of, of thinking. Um, so it's helpful for my students, but then also as, um, as a writer, uh, writing about art has really like opened up another kind of part of my brain and, and writing practice. Um, in terms of just kind of allowing a certain creativity uh, and way of seeing that isn't always right elicited by talking about a novel or um, or only talking about a novel in isolation. Um, so I was excited, yeah, when I saw that the exhibit um, uh, was called Memory Map because to me maps have been um, some of the most generative of Jean's works um, for myself and for the in the classroom. So yeah, again, this this piece here. Um, is another image I use often um, in um, introductory uh, Native Studies and um, the Native Studies literature course um, that I've that I've taught recently, um, and I think it just it, you know I'll put it up and the at first students will kind of sit in silence. With people who teach know that there's always the uh, minute or minutes of silence when you you know sort of throw something down um, for students. Um, and then slowly, every time, they'll reveal things to me that I didn't actually even intend for you know, the lesson to kind of be centered around um, in terms of, yeah, just the little details that they'll point out and the questions that they'll, that they'll raise. So I've seen how um, generative that can be for discussion. Um, but in particular, you know, the reason I put state names up first um, is that it's just such a powerful kind of um, visual denaturalization of the coherency of the United States uh, as it likes to present itself in maps. Um, so it really um, is, a, is a powerful way to introduce the idea, right, that these national maps are telling um, very um, manufactured stories of their kind of own legitimacy. And I think that that sort of um, map can convey that, right, and not so many of my words, but just through that kind of, um, that actual image of what it would be like to represent the United States differently and what kind of political changes would, um, be, would actually make that map right, possible or unearth that prior map um, from underneath um, what has been, been laid over it. And in particularly in states' names, I appreciate, as was pointed out last night, right, that um, that map also blurs the, the borders so that we see a hemispheric indigenous reality, um, which particularly teaching in New York City is really important. Um, and we'll talk about this, I think, when we kind of talk about you know, who Native Studies uh, is for and, and different institutions, who their kind of audience is. Um, but in New York City, right, I have uh, very few like tribally enrolled Native American students, but many students who understand themselves um, 
as indigenous, right, from the in the, in the hemispheric sense, and coming from um, Latin America and, and Central America, and how to kind of create a, a common ground for understanding, right, American history in that continental sense. Uh, something I really appreciate that Jean often uh, highlights in her work. Thank you, everyone. And Lou, I think your your example of um, encountering Jean's work and finding that writing about it kind of opened up new doors for you and and um, helped you develop your own writing is a really great example of kind of the composition of this panel, obviously, right? That um, And it may not be necessarily common knowledge, but I think it's very clear to us who have gone through uh, years of higher education, especially in fields related to, to Native studies, to Native art, is that those studies are often still very siloed in universities, at least in large universities, where Native studies and Native and Indigenous studies departments um, are still often separated from art history departments or similar um, humanities fields. I know I, I struggled with that in my doctoral program, um, and I still see a lot of, of students in graduate programs having to kind of fashion their own degrees, right? Um, I, I certainly had to do that. I've had colleagues who had to do that, um, which is mind-boggling in a number of ways. Um, you know, to me, going in, it seems so natural that no, art is not separate from everything else that we talk about and that we experience and that we, the way we understand the world, right? It's not a separate department. Um, and there are universities now that are making those um, inroads, right, at kind of decentering. Um, and, and really kind of promoting more inter interdisciplinary programs. Um, but I know you all have had to work in interdisciplinary ways. And I'm wondering if you could speak to some of your experience with, experiences with that um, and maybe what some of the advantages or disadvantages you see and how university programs are structured in terms of Native Arts and Native Studies. Well, I grew up thinking it was normal to make things, so that was my my first handicap. Um, like getting into art history and realizing that, like the the norms at the time was like there are people who make things, and then there are people who write about the people who make things, and those two things don't belong together. And indeed, there was like a real suspicion of artists from within the field of art history, and. And it was like, well, you can't believe what they say. Like, I had literally had people tell me that. I'm like, I have a problem with this. <laughs> um, and this is also uh, my art historical, my art history classes were art in the dark, is what I call them. You're like, the professors at the front of the room, in the light, they're showing images, they're speaking, they're the authority. Um, the people in the class are sitting in the audience in silence, taking notes, learning everything and memorizing it and giving it back. And that's that doesn't work with Native art history, first of all, because so much of what's published is wrong. <laughs> and and it doesn't work with, I don't know, my my learning style or what the norms were for me culturally growing up. Um, where things are interconnected. Like you can't understand something if you haven't tried to to like to make it or to work with it or touch it or there's just different ways of knowing that are more than just like words on a page or in a book. Um, and and it really was hard for me to to adapt to that. So I just didn't adapt to it. I just brought like all my practices with me 
and insisted on doing it that way. And I did that for my master's, which was an interdisciplinary studies degree, and it combined an MFA in studio art with a master's in art history. And I studied under Barbara Loeb, so I had a faculty who had studied Native American art. And then um, I was also in the women's studies department. Um, so that brought in the intersections of race, class, and gender um, into, so like I melded all those things together for my master's degree. And then when I figured out, oh, there's nothing I can do with just a master's, um, I decided to go for the PhD in art history. And, um, but I, I encountered in some places that I got into, they wanted me to start over and do a whole nother master's degree in art history. And I was like, no, not even with your full ride. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those years of my life or time, I will never get back, so I won't do that. Um, um, another place um, sent my application over to the anthropology department and accepted me there, and I was like, no. <laughs> I want to have a PhD in art history. And what I got back was crickets. Um, so I, I ended up going into art history, but I carried with me everything that I learned from, um, from my studio practice, from the intersections of race, class, and gender, and incorporated that into my teaching. And fortunately, at UNM, um, I was given like really free hand with my experimentation with teaching. So I stopped teaching art in the dark, and I brought in um, workshops, exercises, hands-on things, and I made my teaching interdisciplinary, and I made my students find their curiosity and search for answers. And I don't, I don't tell people the answers. I guide them in their search for the answers. And there's somebody in this room here who once said to me in class, well, if you don't know, what are you good for? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making eye contact. <laughs> like, and what I'm good for is helping people find their own answers. And I think interdisciplinary studies is, is part of the key to that. Um, yeah, I, I also think about this issue of uh, the siloing of Native American studies. Um, the University of Oklahoma has a fairly young Native American studies program, degree granting program, I should say. Um, though there have been people studying Native American things at the University of Oklahoma for a very long time, um, and in particular in our department. So our department is sort of split, uh, we're, we're partnered with the art department. So thinking about the artists and the art historians being separate um, it not really a problem that we have in our department, but our art historians aren't really making things, except for a few. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a point of, of <laughs> sort of tension, I guess. Um, the University of Oklahoma has an incredible history of Native students um, that goes back to the 1920s. The Kiowa Six, of course, were there at the University of Oklahoma, um, shepherded by Oscar Jacobson, who was the director of the school from 1915 to 1945. Um, and then we, we recently, there's some images in the slide above me that are not this one, but <laughs> they'll cycle through. Um, we recently did an exhibition uh, some of my graduate students and I did an exhibition that was focused on the sort of second generation of Native students at the University of Oklahoma who are art makers. Um, Chief Terry 
Saul, Oscar Howe, and Dick West, uh, who are the first Native people to receive MFAs in the United States, came from the University of Oklahoma. Um, Chief Terry Saul, who's Chickasaw and Choctaw, received his in 1949. So this is uh, a long legacy and that a lot of people go through various programs, uh, or various sort of generational uh, waves of people coming through. So there is a huge history of, of Native people being there, and obviously Oklahoma is a center for that sort of thing, right? There's It's Indian country, so uh, there's a, an incredible legacy there. Um, but thinking about like sort of the institutional support around that, um, our program was established by Dr. Mary Jo Watson, who's seminal. Um, she received her MFA, or sorry, her PhD also in interdisciplinary studies uh, with an emphasis on art history in, let me make sure I get this correct. Um, she received her PhD in 1983. Um, she, but she was teaching courses at the University of Oklahoma in Native Art uh, in 1980. So really, I mean, I think responding to this need and aware of the fact that this is a legacy that needed to be addressed there. Um, she was affiliate faculty with the Native American Studies Department um, and thinking through, you know, really shepherding us into a place where we now have this legacy at the University of Oklahoma that, that, that is interdisciplinary in some ways, that we're working with uh, bringing folks in. Uh, we have courses that ha that bring people that are, it's, it's really fun. I teach an introduction to, to art history, to Native art history course um, that has people that come from the science fields that are like shocked to find out that Native Americans are alive today. And then I have students who are the grandchildren of major Native artists, right? Like, um, I think Horace Pula's great-granddaughter was in my class, and she sat next to a science major that was like, I never knew that there were Indians still. <laughs> so it's quite the diverse range of folks. Um, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of figure out how to connect all of that together and think through ways, um, working with, with other faculty to sort of help people uh, come to a better understanding of, like, reality and how things work. Um, so yeah, and, and really, uh, to me, it, it comes back to the art, that the artists have made these things to teach our students and to help them uh, conceptualize and understand that in, in really productive ways. Yeah, I'm, oh, I feel like my whole PhD process has been able to benefit because of inter, doing the interdisciplinary studies. And um, it really gave me the opportunity to write about and think about what I wanted to talk about, um, especially like being in an art history department and then being able to engage with um, studies of land and geography and connecting that to material culture. Of course, our um, materials come from land and there's just the, all that connection and I've heard that reiterated so many times throughout um, yesterday and this morning of it's also recognizing that interconnectedness that's already present in our native cultures and um, and even just the fact that you can't really separate art from everything else. And it is, it is a part of ingrained in culture and values and everything that we do. So um, yeah, I've also been able to create a lot of community at my primarily white institution. <laughs> and because um, of course having that option to take classes in other departments, you really created a community of um, 
like knowing the same people were gonna be in class with you, but then you'd be able to th think through um, land in different ways. And, and that's definitely been something I've been incorporating into my own teaching of um, the class I was teaching was tribal libraries, archives, and museums. And it's primarily, primarily for information studies students, mostly masters. And um, a lot of the time I would try to connect art and also bring works of art into the class just to try to create more of those connections that um, the different approaches that they're learning in preservation are still are present within our works of art and how how everyone has their own form of an archive but it's just um, yeah I guess different teachings and approaches for how to care for that and um, and yeah, it was uh, an opportunity to actually discuss indigenous issues within the museum and um, any collecting institution for that matter. So um, I, I feel that there's been way more benefits than, than any disadvantage to, to those approaches of making everything interdisciplinary and connected. Yeah, wow, interdisciplinarity. So um, I'm in a, I mean, Native Studies is itself a sort of interdisciplinary field, but I'm also in this department, Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, uh, which is interdisciplinary. Um, and in some ways, um, I feel like I'm gonna become a, a broken record with my like, the possibilities and the foreclosures. But uh, in some ways, you know, interdisciplinarity allows me to continue uh, my dilettante tendencies uh, and draw from uh, art history, history, right, without necessarily needing to always choose and say, um, I'm a historian, which I could, I would be terrified to say, um, because historians as a discipline kind of scare me. Um, but uh, also what I've learned from those experiences, right, is that interdisciplinarity, as much as people want it, is really hard to actually do, right, and to do um, in uh, a good way because it requires a lot of translation and um, exchange and time, right? Um, so that's um, sort of one way that I'm thinking about interdisciplinarity is just how it's actually very difficult and we're all still learning how to, to do it, right, in a, um, in a full way, but... Um, I think the other um, thing that came to mind uh, about this question was just thinking about the different kinds of intentions of, um, of something called Native Studies, but also of just like study in general, which to me is both like about critique and um, like creation. Uh, and so I really appreciate the way you all were talking about like, yeah, that, you know, why do we separate like the talking um, about art making and the art making or the making and the, and the, the um, the discourse, or we may say, like the theory and the and the practice, right? Why are these so um, separated out? Uh, and that, to me, the um, the kind of uh, goal of interdisciplinarity um, would be able to um, always have this kind of critical perspective on the context in which we are trying to create something different from that what we're critiquing, um, and that we sort of need both of those kinds of impulses, right, to understand um, the um, conditions not of our choosing and then choose how we want to transform those conditions, so critique and, and creation, and 
Um, those are um, not always what we're taught in university necessarily, but I think it is the possibility of study um, wherever, it, wherever it occurs or whatever sort of form it takes. Thank you. And I have a question kind of specifically for Kendra and Laura, but I also would love to hear from Alicia and Lou if you have thoughts as well. Um, Kendra and Laura both have uh, relationships with IIA, the Institute of American Indian Arts um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, which as Laura mentioned is, is a, a tribal college. So I'm wondering if uh, both of you could speak a little bit to your experiences with tribal colleges and the role that they play in educating um, native students, maybe versus what you've experienced or understand um, about larger non-native universities and how those kind of compare to one another. Can you go first? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, at IAIA, it was, um, such an incredible experience being able to create community with other Native people. And I'm sort of like, now that I reflect on it, it was such an incredible experience that you, now that I've been in non-Native institutions, as a student, you're forced to educate so much on Indigenous issues that it's, it, that separation of being a student and teacher just gets so blurred. Um, and at IA, where I was able to be a student and I didn't have to have the extra added pressures of, of teaching the rest of the class where the professor was lacking. So, um, and it was really nice to, you know, not, not have to explain that you can't whistle at night or little things like that. <laughs> could just, you could just exist and learn and try to um, progress in your education. So, um, but as I've, as I've been at other institutions as a student, I, I do recognize the value of the resources that other universities have. So, um, I, I don't know, do I jump to that other question now? Go for it. Okay, but um, I think there's a lot of benefit in doing sister institutions and exchanging because there is that incredible community that's able to be built at a tribal college. And um, however, the larger universities have the resources um, for, for research or just, um, funds to, to research, make art, and um, and I think there's, yeah, a lot of benefit in interconnecting these different resources because at UW, you know, it's the same, like, five people that, like, oh, there's this class on Native stuff, so we're all going to take it, so... Um, at least like broadening those options for students at um, PWIs that, that are, can take courses more focused on indigenous issues too. So IAI is a really special place. If, if you 
not familiar with it. It's a tribal college. It's a four-year college, and then there's also MFA programs, creative writing and studio arts now, and, and, it, and it's growing. But there are generally students from about 90 different tribes at, at this college, and um, it's, it's the only college, uh, tribal college, that is also an art school, and it's the only one that's designed to serve all Native students um, nationwide, plus Alaska Native and Hawaii Natives. Um, and I think it, because of that environment, it's really kind of like um, not just art training or training in the arts and culture, but in intercultural diplomacy between tribes and between the the external external world. So we're we're in an environment where we're continuously like learning about other native communities as well and learning about the interfaces with the, the rest of the, the arts, culture, political economy, all of those things together. Um, now, before I, I started teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I was at the Evergreen State College, and that's a, a college that's a liberal arts college. There's no grades. Everything is interdisciplinary. You teach on a team with people from other fields. Um, but it's also a predominantly white institution, but it had really strong um, longhouse squeakly out the um, house of welcome. And so that, that native community there was really important to me as a beginning faculty member um, and also taught me about building arts programs, um, inf arts infrastructure for native artists. And then when I went to Institute of American Indian Arts, and I was just faculty at the beginning, but then I ended up in a situation where I was able to get grant funds and build an artist in residency program. And then um, I was help, I was one of the people who helped create the Research Center for Contemporary Native Arts. And so I've seen this real transition to like those resources that weren't available when you were at I. Now there's a research center, there's funding for research. There's um, funding for artists to come make new work. There's funding for people to come use the archives there. Um, so like, we've been able to build all of these, these things <laughs> and build them in ways that aren't just copies of, of the infrastructure at uh, mainstream institutions. So it's been like an amazing journey. Um, but So how many people in this room have some connection with the Institute of American Indian Arts? Like this is this is an, an institutional reach for for a native institution that's really remarkable, um, and I'm so proud to have been part of the Institute of American Indian Arts for so long. Like there are some of my former students here. There are artists I've worked very closely with. There's people in this room who I've taught with, and um, ex uh, like curated exhibitions of their work, um, and it's. I'm off topic. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> but uh, it's also like um, working within a native institution has been what gives me kind of the strength to to engage with the non-native art world as well um, to do things like be on the board of directors for the College Art Association because. I have like a comfort zone, native community, professional community I'm working with, and, and I can you know, venture out 
and and be the explainer for a while, and then I can you know like go back to my day job and not be the explainer for a few hours a day. Well, I want to be really mindful of our time, and like I said, I made a promise to leave time for questions of the audience at the end. But I want to kind of end with one final question for you all. Um, Kendra and Laura both brought up, um, I think, really good points that come from an experience I think we, at least all of us up here, share, um, and about the emotional uh, labor and toll um, that goes into being an indigenous person in higher education, both as a student, but now also in your roles as educators yourselves in those professional positions um, that is not necessarily shared among other faculty members, other people in those same positions. Um, and I would really like to hear from you all, all four of you, um, about what you think large institutions such as the University of, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma or Wisconsin or the Whitney um, can do to support that labor and the toll um, that it takes to pursue higher education degrees, both as students and as later as faculty who are supporting indigenous students in those programs. Do you have any ideas on what, um, what kinds of resources or support large institutions could provide? <laughs> Don't all talk at once. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to give you guys a chance to. Lou, I'll to call, why don't you go first? Um, money with no strings attached. Um, I think uh, it's a serious proposal, but um, there, you know, in terms of higher education, um, many, uh, there, I don't know, if, I'm sure people up here are familiar with the report that came out last year um, about, you know, barriers to uh, higher education for Native students from the American Indian College Fund. Uh, obviously, cost, right, remains foremost, and that's not just cost for getting into college, but staying in college, going through grad school. Uh, graduating from grad school, right? All of those stages that are necessary to um, to enter uh, the field. So, um, you know, scholarships are are necessary if um, that's the sort of um, you know actual change that the institutions would like to see in terms of people. Um, you know, the kind of the the um, people who attend. But I think there's also uh, maybe to kind of broaden the question is to think of um, yeah, what could we um, also do without those institutions, right? Um, I think we see, and we can kind of see our capacity here, see how many of us are, um, are here, and think about what we could make right on our own. And I think that that's really um, a kind of exciting um, direction to consider, right, is if um, we're getting more of the um, kind of rhetoric of support from institutions, how can we sort of take that uh, and run with it to do something elsewhere uh, and um, yeah, without the kind of constraints that might come with um, those, those uh, the funds that you know, are uh, given. Yes, I just would like to echo free tuition for native students and I know some institutions have been doing that um, and um, I guess I'm as a Ho-Chunk person attending UW-Madison that occupies Ho-Chunk land and the sort of promises that have been made and not followed through, I think that's just one 
major step that um, academic institutions can can take, um, and it's really even like the different initiatives, like there isn't fun funding for those things, or they're very short term. So, um, I think just and investing funds where you say that it matters and following through with it in a, a timely manner. Um, and um, for, I guess for both academic and museums, um, hiring more than one position intended for a native person, someone from marginalized communities, because it is very tasking and a lot of labor that yeah, also includes all the emotional labor of having to um, not only make up for the past and previous, previous issues, but also in all the demands of trying to make things better in the future. So um, say, at least three, at least three jobs need to happen for <laughs> each one <laughs> people are considering. Um, and yeah, because uh, it's um, not sustainable for um, the demands that Native people have to face in order to um, undo some of the, the traumas and um, things that other institutions have have um, put on Native communities, so. Um, Kendra, I really appreciated your point about this sort of like blurring of the line of student and teacher, that you're always having to do extra work to teach uh, sort of basic facts to get some acceptance for your, for your thoughts. Um, I find that to be an especially taxing area as a faculty member um, now because there's an additional labor that goes into um, that our, our non-native colleagues do not have. Um, and, and a lot of that is correcting incorrect things for our students um, and also for our fellow faculty members and other folks on, on campus um, and beyond, right? Um, so I think that there's an additional ask there. Um, I also find that we, we carry, the, the native faculty in our department carry an additional service load um, that's very rarely recognized. We end up serving on committees and, and just to be clear, this is my, my goal, is to help support our Native students at the University of Oklahoma and beyond. Um, I, I served on numerous committees for graduate students because there are not enough Native faculty. And I say that at a point in time when the University of Oklahoma has more Native faculty than they've ever had. So we need more. <laughs> if you're thinking about going into it, please come help us do it um, because there, there's, a, there's a need for direct uh, support for our faculty to, to specifically find us and find and respect our, our knowledges and bring us into those institutions to help correct them. Um, and I know, you know, there's always this tension between staying in the academy and leaving the academy because it's toxic and like that's all fair. Um, but I think that if we, you know, working together to your point to say we need more than one, there can't just be one person that's the, the, the thinker of these things. Um, so having more people um, to help bear this, the load of that 
Um, and there are, I mean, there, it, 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 it's a rising tide. I think that there's a lot of people that are in programs. I know people that are uh, looking into coming into the field. So I think institutions creating space for that and then supporting them once they're there through, um, you know, enlarging our, our capacities there. Um, free money is always good too, so <laughs> I'll leave it there. Um, I think there's there's a, a lot of a lot going on in terms of change and figuring out other ways of doing things. And um, like I wanted to point out, uh, like Indian Collective and Forge Project, um, as as building new kind of arts models and funding and infrastructure, First Peoples Fund and Native Arts and Culture um, Foundation. So there's there's all of these like kind of wellsprings of like, let's be creative, let's build infrastructure, alternative models. And that's really fantastic and hopeful. It also means like it's a lot of work to do, to, to come up with new things. Um, and as more established institutions, including higher education, are looking for ways to change, um, sometimes there's, there's small ways to change that are also like really difficult, but that would make a lot of impact and like you guys are talking like free money yes free money that's great but like even basic things about how contracting is done um, for artists for example or for graduate students or travel funding um, like those people often don't see how those practices exclude people from like even like starting or thinking or saying yes to something because you don't have the resources to, to front it yourself for years. Um, and, and that's some of the things, like it's a problem like in the whole art world really, and, you know, like some of the, the problems that we're talking about aren't just like native problems. They're problems with the structure of art institutions, of higher education, practices around, f um, you know, financial tracking paperwork, like basic stuff. Um, and like, oh, you know, like the finance office isn't like a hotbed of radicalism, but maybe it should be. <laughs> and I can help you with that. <laughs> all right, thank you all so much. I want to take um, five to 10 minutes to see if there are any questions from the audience or any of the panelists up here, any general. <laughs> Let's start with, um, yes, uh, Jean, I think it is, down in the front. <laughs> I'd like to say that you uh, are powerhouse women. I, I mean, you, you were so modest. You, you just didn't tell the big story about the things that you're doing, which are so extraordinary. You started the Living Learning Center at IEIA, and you know, we don't, we, and you also are our best writer on performance art. She writes for every major art periodical in New York. Um, her critical writing goes beyond just native. She does critical writing on all sorts of arts subjects. I mean, she's a voice in the wilderness out there. We have no one who's doing the work that she is doing. That book that you're working on, we need that book desperately. And I can hardly wait until your book arrives. This girl has, as long as your arm, articles on the web that are brilliant and insightful that we need 
and I hope that you form a book with those. I follow each of you uh, in your work and read your work. And you, my dear, writing about native science fiction, who knew? And, uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, there's a whole plethora of, um, of uh, artists working uh, on that. And most of you are working with conceptual and more advanced um, issues, not just painting and classical and, and drawing and that sort of thing, but you, you cross all these gamuts and the new things that are going on. So modestly, you, your, your story is so way much bigger. You are so powerful, each in your own right. I, I just applaud you. <laughs> <laughs> And you, June, is not just a drop of air or water, but you are the flood that opened the gates of the Whitney Museum. And I know for sure it will open the gates of many more museums around the United States and the world, hopefully. And of course, uh, I hope Leonard Paltier will join you at this very important task one day. Education is in the heart of all of that. And I'm so happy to see that a lot is happening in the college level. But it has to start in the elementary level. Elementary school, middle schools, high schools, they don't have anything, anything. They don't know what's going on. You're talking about reality? They don't know that you exist. What can be done? What can you do? What can we all do? The power of art definitely can open the gates, but how can we all join in that very important task? Watch Reservation Dogs. <laughs> I, I also think that that's a critically important question. Uh, I, I live in a state where uh, discussions about race and reality are in danger. <laughs> um, so I think there's a political component to that question that I think um, is really important right now in the United States. Uh, there, there are uh, political actors that want us to stop talking about these things. Um, there are laws that are currently on the books that demand that we stop talking about these things at that level. Um, so sometimes our students get to us, like I said, and they, they're not aware of these things. They're still doing a land run in some of the places. I mean, really ridiculous um, things that are, that are happening. And I, 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 don't, I don't know that we can do all of that, but I do think that collectively being aware of the political situations uh, and, and watching for those things, because it's very dangerous. And we, we then get these students that come into our classes that don't know things, and we, we have an additional task to educate about uh, simple facts. And it's, it's a huge burden. I think that it's something um, that we could certainly use help to, to, to address those things. Um, so yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I think um, being involved in politics is certainly a part that, that we can address that, yeah. Jumping back to the last question about what institutions can do, I think museums have a lot of power in being 
being a voice of reason and the opportunity to educate the public. I know before our program, there were a bunch of littles in the gallery and even just exhibiting indigenous artists, how much educating that, that helps with. And hopefully each of those little kids that was in there will recognize that native people are still living and it really just um, goes into making sure these other educational spaces are also um, in line with that mission. Um, and, also, and that they can help create and fund educational resources so that the public can access it and hopefully use that in their classroom. And especially uh, what you just brought up about the classroom and teachers being, um, being targeted and what they're teaching, I think the museum has a lot of potential to take on some of that load too. Um, and hopefully with additional resources that people can access, that hopefully there will be more kids that won't be questioning whether Native people exist today. Can I just add to that too? I mean, Alicia, you brought up a really good point. Um, not only are these topics endangered in our state of Oklahoma, they're actually illegal. Um, it's not just endangered anymore. And so staying aware of what's happening, I probably am preaching to the choir here, but about what's happening politically in your area and how that affects more than just you um, is I think really key. And to Kendra's point too about providing resources for younger people as well. Um, I also really like to encourage folks to not, um, I, have an, I have a kind of a level of inherent distrust of um, public education in the United States. Um, so I would encourage families, right? Like I mentioned earlier, our um, education in a lot of our communities comes from just conversations that start essentially at birth. <laughs> Uh, with our family members, right? And encouraging that more, um, I know it, it can be difficult and it can be, like I said, uncomfortable um, a lot of the time, but sitting with that discomfort and not always trying to shield others from it, shield children from it, I think can do a lot of the work that we have struggled with in, in our careers and I know that our, you know, the next generation is now struggling with as well. Um, so, look at ways that maybe you can support and take on some of that, that work as well. There's, there's something that I can add to that, and that is that Montana is the only state in the nation right now that teaches K through 12, and all the class has a curriculum of not only Indian history in the state of Montana, but also um, current events. Uh, that our, our um, eight tribes are involved in. And it's because, um, because Corky and other people banded together and uh, created the legislation, but then it has to be funded. If it's not funded, it will not work. Washington State created the legislation, but they didn't fund it. And so it doesn't work in Washington State. I wrote to the governor in New Mexico and to the State Board of Education, asking them to teach K through 12. And the answer I got back was, 
it's up to each teacher to do that. And so we have to go state by state to force the issue and it will teach uh, you know, generations of children as they grow up something about the history of this country. And right now, it's not being taught. Can, can I add one thing? Jean, you, sorry, Jean worked with the education team here at the Whitney to create a family guide geared towards younger learners to go through her exhibition and to learn these things. So that's just a minor note, but give yourself credit for that too. And we have copies if anyone wants. Can I just add one more thing about Montana too, um, coming from a tribe that's in Montana. I also think we should recognize that there are people within our tribal communities that are doing a lot of work to support um, language revitalization, cultural revitalization, our, our, you know, our language and culture offices. I don't think they get enough credit and I think they should get more credit so, and, and more money, I think to your point. Um, the, the folks on, in my community, Fort Peck tribes, um, have active language learning courses that they're, you know, they're bringing students out onto the land, teaching language, teaching culture. Um, so there, there are, you know, there, there's, there's a, a pushback, I think, within our communities of reviving those things. But I think your work points to that we've been doing that in survival mode for a very long time. Um, and I think that work should also get some credit in this discussion. Jean mentioned that Laura has the show opening at the Renwick soon. Yes, um, next Thursday is the opening for uh, the Renwick Invitational 2023. That's at the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Renwick Gallery. And uh, the title of the exhibition is Sharing Honors and Burdens. And it's uh, six contemporary native artists. Joe Federson here in the audience here is one of the artists. <laughs> The exhibition will be up for almost an entire year, so if you make it to DC, please see the exhibition. Uh, are you curating this and you wrote the catalog? Yes, I curated it and, and I wrote, I, I was, <laughs> yes, edited the catalog, all that stuff. Um, Is she paying you for PR? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to pose a, a question just like to think about as we're, we're leaving, closing up. Um, what if, now this is for museums, for like all of us in general, what if kind of the, what is the norm for our native communities where maybe 30 to 50 to 60% of us are involved in artistic production? We are makers. What if the rest of American culture had 30 to 60% of us, everyone makes things? If we make things for ourselves, for one another, to gift one another, to honor one another, to connect with one another, how would that change our country? Thank you so much. We've kept you 10 past, and I think that is an excellent point to end on. So, Yakoki, thank you everyone so much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's conversations. And, yes. Thank you all so much. Um, we have a lunch break, and so you all should have received a yellow wristband. Um, we have two food trucks outside the museum, right out here along where the river is. So you're all welcome. If you go downstairs, exit the museum, and turn towards the river, and just go around the back of the building, the yellow wristband will get you some lunch. Um, please enjoy it and some fresh air, and come back at 2 o'clock. <laughs>